Hi guys, so it's me, Serena, and then there's everyone else. Say hi, guys. Hi. That's Danielle. Hi, Kalia. Kalia. And she's coming. Hi. It's Sam. Okay, anyways. So, okay, so I'm going to go first. So my first motif is the memory and or the lack of memory. And so um, I just talked about how the party, like, wants to control everything and, like, the including the past and, like, what's going on now. And so when they're doing that, like, they're trying to, they have to control their memory, but, and they're, like, really doing a good job, obviously, because everyone seems to be controlled. And without, like, having memory and, like, having active thoughts, you, like, people in the society can't, they don't have the ability to know the past. And so the party is able to control like what happened in the past and what continues to happen in the future and so a quote that I chose uh, from part one is he tried to squeeze out some childhood memory that should tell him whether London has always been like this were there were where there are always these vistas of rotting 19th century houses their sides shored up with box of timbers their windows patched with cardboard and their roofs with corrugated iron. Their crazy walls sagging in... <laughs> their roofs with corrugated iron, their crazy garden walls sagging in all directions. And the bomb sites where the plaster dust swirled in the air and the willow herbs draggled over the heaps of rubble. And the places where the bombs had cleared a large patch and where had there had sprung up sordid colonies of wooden dwellings like chicken houses, but it was no use. He could not remember. Nothing remained of his childhood except a series of bright lit tableaus occurring against no background and mostly unintelligible. So Winston's memory of the past is like really not there. It's kind of fuzzy and he remembers like pieces and parts, but since he's been so brainwashed and like just doesn't even like he he just can't remember anything anymore and so that's kind of an example of how the party controls the past um and then okay so two more quotes both from part one um about winston uh losing memory so the first one is for how could you establish even the most obvious fact when there existed no record outside your own memory he tried to remember and what he had heard mention of Big Brother. He thought it must have been at some time in the 60s, but it was impossible to be certain. So this is another example of Winston not even knowing like what has happened and he can't even remember because he, he's been, all the records have been changed and he's been told so many times that that didn't happen, so he doesn't even have a memory at all. Um, let's see. And then the last quote is, in no case would it have been possible once the deed was done to prove that any falsification had taken place. And so this quote is also from part one. And it was like, it was about um, when he was like working on falsifying records for his job. And so it's just showing like that he, he like once he changes them, like there's no record that they were ever different. So then your only thing that you can believe if you're like a citizen is that that's how it was always and so that's how they brainwash people
Um, yeah, so I noticed in part one that the author kind of um, emphasizes the amount of power the party holds, and it kind of showed that it prevents the people from acknowledging their thoughts and how they perceive the past since they kind of controlled what they do remember or lack that. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I thought too. Um, anyways, okay, so my second um, motif was the ulcer. And so this, I think that this ulcer kind of like represents like him throughout the book because at the beginning of the book, like the very first page has the quote, um, the flat was seven flights up and Winston, who was 39 and had a varicose ulcer above his right ankle, went slowly resting several times each way. So clearly this is something that's like bothering him and kind of, it's kind of, it's something that's very aggravated and then in the middle of the book we notice that like he's like met julia and he's kind of like starting to feel hopeful about everything and like hopeful that maybe he can kind of like change something and so this is and then you don't really hear about the ulcer but then at the end of the book you start hearing about it bothering him again when he's being tortured and he knows that like his rebellion is over so i kind of think that that kind of flows with the book and it's just like something that's like mentioned the whole way Adding on to what Serena said, Winston's ulcer is an expression of his consistently repressed humanity because the ulcer only flares up when Winston is being controlled. Oh, yeah, that's such a good point. Yeah, and I also, like, didn't uh, realize that it was mentioned in the first page or, like, in the first part of the book and also, like, the last. Yeah, I didn't didn't even really realize that either until, like, I was doing the project, so that's kind of cool. There was a lot of stuff that I didn't realize until I, like Serena said, I started doing this project. There's a lot of little hints in the book that I didn't pick up on when I first read it. Yeah, Yeah. I agree. Such a good point. Okay, so my third motif is kind of like a smaller one, but it was just like in general, the like concept of hiding, I feel like was really a lot in the book. And so like in the beginning, he's just like obviously hiding from the telescreen and so that was like a big part and he's like always trying to hide his thoughts like from when he was like with those like little kids and it's just like how he like throughout the whole book he just feels like he has to hide everything that he does so that he can like fit a certain thing and then or fit into how what the party wants and then when like in the middle of the book I feel like it's kind of the same as the ulcer like when he finds out that O'Brien can like escape the telescreen or like he thinks that O'Brien can escape the telescreen and like turn it off is kind of like I feel like that's kind of like a relief and with Julia is kind of like they're still hiding but like it feels more free but then in the end it's kind of like that thing of like in a place where there is no darkness like he can't he he's still hiding like but he's at the end he barely can hide because everything he does is like controlled by the party and not even in the same way that it was before because like before it was like he was still living in the world but now he's like really in the jail and like controlled so yeah I think um what you're saying about how beforehand he was still in the world he was like controlled in a sense but at least he was still free now he's like completely not free at all and he's so constricted and he has to do whatever the party says and he even um there's a part where he mentioned that if he got on O'Brien's good side 
and did what O'Brien wanted him to do, then maybe his punishments would be less painful. Yeah. Yeah, that's a true point. Yeah, Yeah, and I feel like that's why, that's like one of like the biggest factors of why he wants to rebel so much is because there are so many restrictions and limitations that the party holds on them that he feels the need to break them. So, yeah. Yeah, same. I that yeah, that's exactly what I mean by the hiding is like he's always trying to like hide from the party and like what all their like rules and stuff, but then at the end he just can't. Um onto the last motif is um the to I did two minutes hate and so the two minutes hate is something observed and it's like made to have like to make everyone just be angry and like hateful and mostly against like the people who are the so-called enemies of the party and this kind of just like makes the party very like seem like the good guys and then the other people seem like the bad guys and just like it really kind of evokes everyone's emotions because like if you're just like told to be angry like you're gonna be angry and so the quote I think that kind of represents this the most is the one that says the horrible thing about the two minutes hate was not that one was obliged to act apart, but that it was impossible to avoid joining. And even, and this was like the scene where in the beginning, like Winston was like not really doing anything, but then at the end he was getting into it and getting angry too. And he didn't even really mean to, it was just like everyone else around him was doing it. So he had to too. And I feel like that's kind of how the whole, like how the party works to control everyone is like, oh, let's just, if we just say it's like this, then everyone's going to think it's like this. And that's kind of how they control people. Um, Yeah. Okay, so my first motif is dreams. Um, Dreams have been a reoccurring motif throughout the whole book and it has played a pivotal part um, throughout the whole story. So um, when we first uh, hear about dreams and, and think about it, it foreshadows a lot later on in the book. Like, for example, um, Winston has a lot of distinct dreams about um, certain places and people that he meet, that he meets. Like, for example, he in his dream, he mentioned that there's a place where there is no darkness, um, which actually turns out to be the Ministry of Love, which has no darkness because the lights never go out. Um, and then during one of his meetings with Julia, Winston wakes, wakes up to see a rat, which triggers Winston to panic. Um, which reveals one of his worst fears. And then rats are a childhood memory that he can't seem just to remember or recall unless it's through a dream. Um, Also, while in the Ministry of Love, Winston is being beaten and tortured, but he stays strong. But once they bring out the rats, Winston breaks almost instantly, which kind of just foreshadows like when he was dreaming and um, it woke him up to reality. And then also another example, this is... uh, when he dreams about the girl, the dark-haired girl, um, it foreshadows just him meeting Julia and um, his journey with her. And I think dreams just show how, shows like how repressed he is, and um, in general, like how he he can't remember anything unless it's through a dream, and um, how significant it is. Oh yeah, um, I I totally agree that like his dreams foreshadow things and I think that that was like a good point about the darkness one because I I didn't even think about that like when I was thinking about my own hiding motif okay um my second motif is big brother 
Um, Big Brother represents the totalitarian government of Oceania, which is controlled by the party, and then therefore it's the same. Um, Winston learns that in Goldstein's book, um, that Big Brother is just, he's not a real person, but just an idea and invention of the party um, to get a feel from people and to get emotional responses from the people to be able to control them. Um, the worship of Big Brother also provides just a hint of relate or for like hints at um, organized religion, um, which has just been outlawed by the party. Um, and then the face of the party has never been seen. But um, um, also the face of the party has never been seen, but that kind of just contradicts itself because it's just um, we don't know what Big Brother looks like, which is it's on to he has never been seen. And then as described in the text, the face of the big brother seemed to persist for several seconds on the screen as though the impact that it had made on everyone's eyeballs was, was too vivid to wear off immediately. Um, big brother's intimidation lies just deep within the citizens. Big brother symbolizes power and the state and the complete op oppression of society. Um, like adding on to just what the dreams, um, Winston never saw Big Brother, but he soon just learns to who Big Brother is and what he looks like, and he gets a sense of it. And then um, also, it took a long time for Winston to realize who he is and the true meaning of Big Brother, which is just the oppression of the society. Mm, yeah, I, you made like a lot of good points, and my I think the one that really like stuck with me was the one about like the organized religion and then so like and I never thought of it like because the religion had been outlawed by the party but I never thought of it kind of like the party almost is a religion because people kind of like they kind of think of it like that because like it's almost like a little bit of a cult because they all like follow it but it's almost like not a religion because they don't really know that they're a part of it because they're being controlled by it yeah um to add on to sam uh one of my motifs that i found in the book that has a lot to do with big brother is um the rules and restrictions within the society um big brother like since the figure is constantly watching your every moon and uh move and thoughts um it kind of uh encourages the party to control the bodies of its people but also manipulate their minds um throughout the book we kind of see that the party constantly watches for any sign of disloyalty to the point that as Winston um, observes even a, or expresses even such a slight facial expression or even a thought can lead to an, an arrest. For example, in part one, chapter two, uh, Winston writes in his journal, he says, to the future or to the past, to a time when thought is free, when men are different from one another and do not live alone, to a time when truth exists and what is done cannot be undone. From the age of uniformity, from the age of solitude, from the age of big brother, from the age of double think, greetings. So when he writes this, he's kind of aware that this is an act of rebellion, however, continues to do it. And as we said, like, in the beginning of this podcast, we were talking about how there are so many restrictions and limitations that it kind of encourages Winston to want to rebel and want to go against all these rules 
um, by dedicating the Journal of Rebellion to the future or to the past, he is interested in a large or grand scale of rebellion, um, the type that preserves itself and leads to the overthrow of the party, since he kind of is like very much anti the party and that has to do with like o'brien because he strongly believes that he is the enemy of the party just as he is um additional to the idea of rules and restrictions uh we are kind of seeing that the party controls every source of information uh whether that's managing or rewriting the content of all newspapers and history for its own um, in society, no one is able to keep records of their past, such as pictures or documents. And as a result, memories become blurry and unre unreliable, and citizens become willing to believe whatever the party tells them to. So that kind of has to do with the dreams aspect on like how like the memories is kind of lacking, but what they do see and what they do remember comes from the dreams itself. And by controlling the present, the party is able to uh, sort of manipulate the past, um, like I said, like rewrite newspapers and all that. And in controlling the past, the party can justify all of its actions in the present. Um, yeah, I I agree with what you said, and I feel like kind of something is like what you said about the rules, like and how he's rebelling. Like I feel like the more rules that you put in place, like the more almost that people want to rebel, like when you have rules. And I feel like he's, we can see Winston like rebelling a lot because like he's very like throughout the book, he definitely like does some like physically rebellious things like go out with Julia and like writing in the diary. But he also has like psychological rebellion, like where he's like thinking about things like, like thinking about rebelling and thinking about like leaving the party and stuff like that. Okay, adding on to what you said, Clea, about how um, there's the party is able to read our history, I think it shows just the power differential between the party and the rest of the population. Um, I think that because the party is able to um, rewrite history, it gives them the advantage to say, to tell the population that they're wrong, which makes it seem like the population is less. Um, also, because they're able to rewrite history, Anybody who goes against them and rebels against what they say about the past or the future or the present, um, they're able to just to easily, I guess, ex execute them, which just shows like how like they're using the power to oppress the citizens and to take advantage of them to be huge Big Brother followers. Um, so. Yeah, um, adding on to all that, um, like you said, the execution part, and that has to do with the physical torture. Um, in part two, chapter 10, Winston and Julia get caught for their disloyalty. Um, while O'Brien invites them to come and get the Newspeak Dictionary, he pretends to be a member of the resistance. And I think that's why they were so um, like inclined to get to know O'Brien and like be friends with him because they thought he was on their side being like anti-party and anti all of that. But they later come to find out that all along O'Brien was manipulating them and that he was a part of the party. And after being sub um, sub subjected to weeks of intense torment, Winston himself, himself comes to the conclusion that nothing is more powerful than physical pain and no emotional loyalty as in like with 
Julia or moral conviction can overcome it. And we also kind of, or I also recognize that by conditioning the minds of the victims from the party with physical torture, the party is also able to control reality. One of my motifs going off of what Kalia said by controlling reality is thought police. And thought police is the traditional law enforcement that is replaced by the thought police or think pool. And the thought police who you never, well, in the book, Winston or any of the citizens never knew who was a part of thought police or where they were at any time. They served as a judge or jury and executor for any crimes against the party doctrines or even just having negative thoughts in general. And they have no hierarchy or organization and their individuals are unidentifiable. So you could be walking on the street and not know that a member of the thought police is right next to you. And that's what really messed with the mind of Winston and everyone else in Oceania because they believed that thought police were inside of their mind and they could hear or see their thoughts because Big Brother and the telescreen has tormented them so much to the point of paranoia and the that big brother's always watching you and he's always listening and he always knows the citizens thought that they couldn't even have their own right to think um in the book Winston once said the thought police would get him just the same he had committed would have committed even if he had never set pen to paper the essential crime that contained all others in itself, thought crime, they called it. Thought crime was not a thing that could be concealed forever. You might dodge successfully for a while, even for years, but sooner or later, they're bound to get you. Everyone in Oceania, Oce- sorry, Oceania had that mentality that they're never safe from thought police. And it's just a constant, um, constant, a constant like they have like a constant fear. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Like of being uh, caught. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Get the word. A constant <laughs> feeling of fear and paranoia, and the thought police took away all freedom of speech and thoughts. They were always around, and you never knew where they were. But we later found out that the thought police was always around figuratively, but not literally. And Winston and all the other citizens did not know that. Everyone was just led on to believe that thought police were able to read your mind, but they weren't. It was just another propaganda technique um, from Big Brother and O'Brien and the rest of the party to get the citizens of Oceania Oceania to behave and slowly give up everything to Big Brother and lose their minds to the party. So the party has all control. Yeah, that was really good. I like um, what you said. And I agree, like, of the part of, like, giving into Big Brother and, like, the party and, like, especially, like, the part about losing your mind because, like, I mean, imagine if, like, like, if I was, like, mad at Kalia and, like, but, like, she didn't have to know that, but then if she knew, then she would know. So, like, I feel like that's just a little, a little freaky. Yeah, I agree. That is very freaky. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so my next motif, motif, it's a little short, it's um, Ministries. So the names of ministries in 1984 um, exemplifies the idea of doublethink. Um, The Ministry of Truth, which concerned itself with news, entertainment, education, and the fine arts. 
um, their names in news newspeak, many true, many past, many love, and many plenty. In reality, the Ministry of Peace is in change of waging war. The Ministry of Truth manipulates and distorts information, and the Ministry of Love oversees punishment, and the Ministry of Plenty focuses on the economic shortcomings. Yeah, I think I think that I like hearing these again, like that quote again out loud is just like I can really hear the irony because when it's like ministry of love and then it says love and then punishment and then like plenty and then shortcomings like just the irony of all those but how like the citizens think it's so normal even though they probably like know what those words mean and so I think it's just a little bit ironic and it really shows how much control the party has over them okay um adding on to what Serena was saying I totally agree um she said about like the ministries and it being ironic I also think like the ministries um since the population and the citizens aren't allowed to think, um, I think they don't really see an, an issue with any of these. They just think it's, like you said, a normal thing. Um, and I also think all these ministries were just created. But I, I, I feel like when it was created, it wasn't to, like, I guess, punish them. It was just to set some boundaries and set rules. And then I think over time, like, it became what it was because of their idea of Big Brother and um, and the society and how it works. Yeah, um, going off for what like you said, Serena, I feel like throughout the book there's so many like contradicting things that, um, for example, like you said, the Ministry of Love also punishment. Um, I also feel like, or I think it's crazy that people in society who like are like follow the party and things like that they don't realize that some of the things that they're doing is not normal or like it's very contradicting very ironic and i think it is good that winston like realizes that these things should be i guess fixed or like talked about so yeah i just want to add that good point touching in excuse me on what sam said about double think um one my next motif is doublethink and doublethink is propaganda and psychology manipulation of its leadership and the public <clears throat> um sorry double doublethink is the ability to hold two completely contradictory beliefs at the same time and to believe that they're both true early on in the book we see that with winston especially with his past Double think refers to the ability to control your memories. And a specific example of this is Winston not being able to remember his mother or anything about his childhood. And double think is to choose to forget something as well as um, to forget about the forgetting process. So Winston didn't even know that he forgot about his mother and he doesn't remember anything about her. <clears throat> Later on in the novel, as the party implements its mind control techniques, the people ultimately lose the ability to form thoughts. Mm-hmm. Um, double think is also a form of mental discipline whose goal um, is to get everyone to believe. The goal is for the party to get everyone to believe two contradictory truths at the same time. 
Um, for an example, like Sam said, the Ministry of Peace concerns itself with war. The Ministry of Truth concerns itself with lies. The Ministry of Love concerns itself with truth, torture, and the Ministry of Plenty um, concerns itself with starvation. These are contradictories to uh, what they call themselves, and they're not accidental, nor do they result from any ordinary hypo hy hypocrisy. Um, they're deliberate to exercise um, examples of doublethink. Along with war is peace, freedom is slavery, and ignorance is strength is another obvious example of doublethink. War is not peace, war is chaos, freedom is not slavery, freedom is being free to do what oneself wants, and ignorance is strength, ignorance is weakness, um, the best strength is knowledge. <clears throat> and George Orwell uses these examples of irony to highlight how Oceania manipulates its citizens' minds in order to gain complete control and remove the ability for citizens to have independent thoughts. Oh yeah, I totally agree. I think that's a really good point. And I think it's kind of like almost ironic that they call it double think when like the citizens aren't really even like probably thinking about it because they don't really have like the ability to think. So to elaborate more on what uh, Danielle was talking about for the slogans, in the novel 1984, uh, one of the most like repeated or relevant phrases that was talked about was war is peace, freedom is slavery, and ignorance is strength. And these are the party's three contradictory slogans, which are perfect examples of how the ruling government uses language to manipulate and control the, uh, the people's thought processes and just like people in society in general. In chapter one of part one, Winston stated, and the face of the brother faded away again. And instead, the three slogans of the party stood out in bold capital letters. War is peace. Freedom is slavery. Ignorance is strength. Page 20. Um, so George or Orwell opened the book in this way, kind of in order to introduce to the audience the concept of doublethink, which Danielle touched on. Um, and just to, like reiterate that it allows, uh, it is what allows the people of Oceania to live with constant contradictions in their lives. Um, the phrase ignorance is strength appears in the book and it kind of describes that the party is able to maintain power and control by keeping the rest of the population ignorant or kind of like unaware of the things going on and by not permitting society to look at the past while also manipulating the future they're emphasizing the intense power that they hold over the people so kind of uh again to emphasize how much they want to control their people by having their power another motif is winston's journal his journal functions as a symbol of his thought crime, his private revolt against the party, and of the old times before the party came to power, which he is continually, continuously trying to recall and discover. He records in writing his hatred for Big Brother and the party, and this journal serves as his freedom that he so badly desires, and it contains information about the past, 
it no it doesn't contain information about the past but it's a means to record his own past so winston has no memory of his past or time before big brother or any of that so he does the unthinkable crime of writing in a journal so he could record his life right now and everything going on right now so he has a kind of like a physical copy or evidence of what happened in the past so he could look back on it um winston is trying to record this but he has since grown up in a world which the past is in is artificial and it doesn't exist so he doesn't have any understanding of what past really means his perception of the past will always be based on what he himself knows and how he understands the principle itself um the principle uh sorry how he understands the principle itself all that is shaped by big brother is what he now knows and he's trying to find out what happened before big brother shaped society um he would attempt to write anything about his parents or grandparents but he would create his ancestors in his own image so it's not the real past of what he had but it's what he imagines the past to be mm. um one of the quotes is if there's hope it lies in the pearls um winston writes this in his journal early in the novel and it reflects on his belief that party mem members even rebellious ones will never be able to overthrow the party from within but that um it would be possible to do so if there was more in numbers mm. um but the poor social group made up for the proletarians or proles in the language of the novel which um he's basically saying that all the poor social group needs to come together to help overthrow the party and that it is impossible unless there's strength in numbers mm, yeah that was really good oh sorry comment um also like you're saying danielle about like um the journal and um like the significance i also feel like the journal was his first um i guess act of rebellion i mean he knew he couldn't have it but i also feel like the journal symbolizes more like also symbolizes like the thoughts he's writing which he also can't think like th thought crime and i feel like that's another sign of rebellion i think the journal has different types of rebellion all in one and, and i feel like it just ties into just everything about once and, and like you see how much he despises it i guess in a way like big brother and the whole society and um it just shows like how like something so little as like a journal can express a lot of hatred and rebellion overall yeah i really i i mean this is kind of different than what sam said but something i really noticed in danielle's thing was when she talked about like the diary being like a physical thing because i think that it's like a rebellion but it's like they all the like members even like winston even though he's like above the proles like they don't really like have anything that's like theirs that like means anything to them and so i feel like this journal is like such a big act of rebellion and it was like the first one so then it's kind of like just like a really big deal yeah and add, adding on to like what he was writing in the journal 
um, it did, uh, I remember one of the book where it said that on the piece of paper, Big Brother is watching you. And that kind of ties into the motif I wanted to talk about, which was uh, constant watching. So throughout the book, that's kind of what it was about. Um, it centered around the consequences of mass surveillance and constant watching. And Orwell has created the idea or action of the telescreen as a symbol of the continual surveillance done by the party and thought police. And when Winston is facing the telescreen, his expression is kind of like, he isn't very happy about it because I don't know, no one really wants to be happy about being watched all the time. And even like your thoughts or like a slight facial expression can cause some damage kind of and um when one's thoughts wander into like different places or things that you shouldn't be thinking about it could be da uh, potentially dangerous which isn't a good thing um fortunate for winston there is a small corner in his apartment that is hidden from the telescreen uh and i think that is where he um did his journaling and all that but that doesn't um, eliminate the thought police that is still like in the uh, uh, in his life. Um, also, Orwell displays how uh, the modern day society kind of has restrictions of the inner party um, by the limitations, the constant watching, and the surveillance in itself. <clears throat> Sorry, um, and. He was kind of saying how anyone who does manage to defy the party or becomes disloyal will be punished and re-educated through brutal torture. And I just, I don't know, that that really stood out to me because they're, the constant watching isn't healthy. And I think in, in their society, it is way too normalized. So I think, like I said before, I think it is good that Winston is aware of that. Yeah, that's a good point, because I feel like through the whole book, it's like, and someone said this earlier, but like about how Winston, like he is aware, like because so many people aren't. And so I mean, like good for him, like it doesn't end well for him, but at least good for him that like he had some moments where he was like aware and he knew that it was wrong. So like, yeah. Another motif is time. The party makes a large effort to delete all evidence of time and history, one example of this is when Winston met the man in the bar who was around before Big Brother's time. He was very intrigued with the man, but the man was not able to say or recall much because the party has gone to efforts to delete the evidence of history beforehand. Um, as soon as all the corrections, which happened to be necessary in any particular number of the time had been assembled, and collected, the number would be, <clears throat> sorry, um, the number would be reprinted. The original copy destroyed and the correction and the corrected copy placed on files and it's seated. This process of continuous alternation was applied not only to newspapers, but to books, periodicals, pamphlets, posters, leaflets, films, soundtracks, cartoons, photographs, to every kind of literature or document which might hold any political or ideological significance. Day by day and almost minute by minute, the past is brought up to date. All history, 
was scraped clean and re-scrambled exactly as often as necessary. In no case would it have been possible once the deed was done to provide any, I mean, to provide any falsification had taken place. Um, Orwell, page 40 to 41 and 183. That was a quote from, two quotes from the book where um, it's hard evidence of um, history being deleted. Yeah, I totally agree with what you said, um, about, like, how the time is just, like, they don't even have a sense of time, and I feel like it's kind of almost weird, because, like, Winston knows that the time is being, like, erased, because he's kind of, like, erasing the time himself, um, but he, I don't even know, it it almost feels like he doesn't really, like, put that together, because, like, he knows, but, like, He's still, like, so, like, interested in it, and, like, he still kind of brings it up a lot. <laughs> um, so just like how you mentioned, Danielle, how the party changes um, the past, uh, this leads into my final motif of the razor blades. I think the razor blades symbolize how the party is kind of able to deprive its citizens of things without, e- without them even knowing. And going back to the topic of restrictions and limitations, the party deprives society of many things. Um, the razor blades symbolize free will and the ability to shape your own world the way you want it on your terms. As well as symbolizing independence from the party, it also represents the control or dictatorship that the state has over life. And the state controls the supply of free will as they want. Yeah, I totally, I kind of remember that one scene, um, and then it was, like, Winston was talking to one of his colleagues, and then they were talking about, like, um, the razor blades, and how, because it was, like, oh, they had, like, had them before, but then they only had a certain amount now, and so it was, like, but they thought that they, like, they thought they were getting more than they used to, and, like, the same thing with the chocolate rations, so the party makes it seem like they're doing good when they're really, like, taking away. Um, So the last motif is rats. And in 1984, the rats represent Winston's deepest fears because he's more afraid of them than anything else. On a deeper level, however, the rats also symbolize the extent of the party's control over the people in Oceania. In part through chapter five, for example, O'Brien describes the rats as being intelligent and deliberately preying on the sick and dying. Just like the rats, the party also uses uses its intelligence to prey. The rats, too, are single-minded in their pursuit of prey. O'Brien, for example, tells Winston that a baby cannot be left alone in the poor quarter, even for five minutes, because the rats are certain to attack it. This is symbolic to the party's relentless pursuit of power. The party will never let go of power and control, just as the rats will never relinquish an opportunity to feed or attack. Okay, so now we're going to move on to the scene section of the podcast. We each have two scenes, and so I'm going to start out with the, um, it's the first two minutes hate. Um, it starts on page eight, and I think it ends on page 11 or 12. So this is an important scene because we haven't really heard, read much of the book yet, and we're already just diving into like two minutes hate. So it starts out by saying like, it starts at 1100 and it's in the department where he worked 
and when he's walking over to his seat um this is the first time where he sees the girl with the dark hair who he doesn't know yet but is julia and obviously that's really important because this is like where we first see her with the anti-sex like uh anti-sex like slash sash oh sorry over her waist and this is like where we first see winston kind of confused um and obviously julia becomes a really important character later in the book and then we this is also where we first see o'brien and um he's kind of like the quote that's like o'brien's political orthodoxy was not perfect and winston's kind of getting like a vibe from o'brien that we kind of see throughout the book and i mean obviously o'brien ends up being not very good in the end but that's just when we first see him and then um after that there's kind of a lot of like imagery and like auditory imagery like hearing the sounds that you hear from the two minutes hey and from people in the room like the hissing and stuff like that and then also you hear um you see things like the pictures I mean I'm sorry you see like Goldstein who's the enemy and then you see kind of like the the reaction that it provokes from the audience of like how people are just getting so angry um and then you see big brother and then people are getting more like they're getting kind of happy and they're and then as it goes on like the hate gets very like it said this is the this is the quote before the hate had proceeded for 30 seconds uncontrollable explanations of rage were breaking out from half the people in the room um and so that's just kind of like showing that people are really getting into this, even if they don't mean to, like, they just, it's impossible to join in. I think I mentioned that in my motif of Two Minutes Hate, the same quote of, um, the horrible thing about the Two Minutes Hate was not that one was obliged to act a part, but that it was impossible to avoid joining in. And so I think that's just kind of like further showing how much control the party has and like, how they're just all like all together kind of like like sheep just in a room like just hating on something that they don't even know so that was the two minutes hate my first scene is when um oprah winston when winston and julia met each other for the first time so when winston first met julia he first saw this woman on the street who gauged his eyes because she was so different than all the rest you could obviously see that she was rebelling she's part of the junior anti-sex league and we saw that by the sash across her um body the bright red sash sash um and winston these feelings towards her that he's never had towards anyone else before and he didn't really know how to handle these feelings he had such a strong lust for her and he knew that that wasn't okay in big brother society and he didn't exactly know how to feel about that or how to deal with it so he changed lust into anger he wanted to hurt her he wanted to kill her for making him feel this way about her and then as we progress into the book we see that when winston and julia start to 
interact more he realizes that he can't hurt her and that he really likes her and then they eventually start dating and it gets to the point where they say i love you and he has this strong love for her and it's really interesting to see winston's character development from being so angry at her and taking all of his anger out on her wanting to hurt her and kill her and bash her head in to loving her yeah that's such a such a like crazy transition um i i was like amazed by that that's one of my scenes that i'll do later but like kind of like the change but like i just i don't know it's kind of like shows how messed up his mind is that he can go from that so fast yeah and it happened very fast mm -hmm. it was like within the span of a few days that he went from wanting to kill her to loving her yeah he literally she literally like she was like gonna kill her and then he writes her a note that says i love you and then they're like riding off in the sunset like that was weird literally <laughs> okay my scene is in chapter eight part two and it's when winston and julia's relationship um gets tested when they join the rebellion i thought this scene was really interesting just because um it foreshadows the future of the relationship um because during this scene winston and julia made a lot of i guess promises to ryan like that they would do anything and they'd be willing to do anything for the rebellion um except leave each other and then um o'brien mentions that like um they have to be willing to accept that one of them or winston might not come back the same person and then like winston just mentions that he um he he would still love julia and julia would still love him and and nothing would change and they would never just betray each other but um it's kind of ironic because um at the end of the book um you see that Winston actually like they both betray each other even though they said that they would stick by each other through thick and thin um and then also is interesting because yeah I, I mean I guess I, it is a book but um they're they're eagerness and like willingness to just do anything for the rebellion um is so strong that they're they would harm anybody physically mentally but um they don't really realize that they're the ones later on that is going to be going through like the mm. mental and physical damage and then also it's kind of interesting how i mean as danielle mentioned like how winston progressed i mean at the start of the book he was really hesitant for most things and he would like hide by, behind the scenes. But I think now that he met Julia, she really pushed him to um, develop more. And now he he's willing to do anything. And he's more, I guess, in the front lines of things rather than behind the scenes and lurking, um, which is kind of just really interesting how Julia is able to motivate and push him to be a different person than the start of the book. Um, and then also, I think, going back to what I said previously, it's also kind of weird that Winston is so dedicated to her, but once he um, finds out his deep fear of, like, rats, he really just breaks down and then betrays her, um, Julia, so, yeah. Oh, yeah, I really, um, what stuck out to me the most was when you, like, were like, oh, like, um, uh, like that they were so loyal like to like 
um, the rebellion, and I feel like kind of, like, their loyalty to each other kind of, like, grew at the same time that, like, their loyalty to the rebellion grew, and then, like, it kind of, like, faded out at the same time because they were just, like, taking from each other and then, like, taken from the rebellion. Okay, so I'm back and my scene is a little bit before theirs was, but it is the scene when Winston has just gone to Mr. Charrington's shop and he found the coral paperweight. He talked to the old man. He was really out on an adventure. He's kind of like, he's kind of on, he's kind of like on a little high here. He's very, he's happy. Like he's, he's been, he's been like rebelling and I think that was like really good for him. And then when he's coming out, he, it's like, he sees the girl from the fiction department, the dark-haired girl, or Julia, who we'll find out about. And he sees her, and he's, like, super scared. And he starts walking the wrong way. He goes back and forth, and he like he's like, oh, she's for sure a spy. Like, she, she knows who I am. She's here. She's stalking me. She's going to tell on me. Like, I might as well just kill myself, is what he actually says. He says the proper thing was to kill yourself before you before they got you um and this is kind of the part that is like referenced or that we referenced a lot about how he was like um what what he wanted to do julia was smash her skull with cobblestone um and he didn't end up doing it which um like ends up being good because he falls in love with julia but um he was just like the whole time he was like very he was just like automatically saw her and became angry of her angry at her and this is kind of I think what we talked about yeah at the very beginning of uh Dan- what Daniel talked about at the beginning of the uh book with how she will how he resents her because he like thinks that she like she wears the anti-sex sleeve while being like while he's like attracted to her but he doesn't know how to interpret that because of how the party has like drilled the drilled that into his mind so that is my scene Okay, so going back to the party, rewriting history and all that, during hate week, the party um, manipulated the people by switching the sides of the war. So after the 90-hour work week that Winston uh, worked, he was extremely tired and exhausted. And in the middle of it, Oceana has switched enemies while the allies are in the ongoing war. Um, At one rally, the speaker is forced to change his speech halfway through it uh, to point out that Oceana is not, and they say that it never has been, at war with Eurasia. Rather, the speaker says Oceana is and always has been war with East Asia. And to elaborate more on Hate Week, it is a week-long festival in which the party actively encourages society or the people of Oceania to direct hatred towards enemies of one sort or another. Um, The whole purpose of Hate Week is kind of to bind the people of Oceania more closely to together or to the state, making it all uh, the easier to control them. Um, I feel like Um, what you said kind of like, I don't know why it just reminded me of this, but it kind of reminded me of like spirit week because like at Mercy, it's like supposed to like bring us all together. Like at any school, it's like supposed to like bring you all together. And I mean, 
it does like it brings us together through spirit but I feel like it's kind of weird if you have like hate week because that's just like not something that you think brings people together but I guess in their society it kind of does and it like it is like what like exactly like you said Clea it like is the control is like hating like the same thing which is just kind of like a weird thing to think about but yeah yeah I think they like really try and normalize like violence and hatred yeah and that's their way of bringing people together which you like you said it's like really strange and weird funky yeah (laughs) okay so my scene is later in the book it's also again about the rats and the torture that Winston has to go through um I think the torture that Winston had to go through is really interesting. It's because, like, um, after they he got caught and the, um, the what is it called, the torture methods that O'Brien put him through really didn't, I mean, physically it affected him, but mentally, like, he, w- he still had the, um, I guess, willpower to, to push through them. And um, it was interesting, like, to see how Winston was not really i mean affected physically but mentally like he he wouldn't really fully i guess confess himself and betray anybody quite yet um um and it it's weird to see like how um it really took a toll on winston like having his deepest fear um and biggest fear come into play um because he was so willing to just change in an instant and you know, go against, I guess, his morals from, like, previous, like, not to betray anybody. Um, But I think he really, you could just see, like, just a shift between Winston and, I mean, I guess you could see the shift in him being really exhausted towards, like, the more torture he goes through, like, the more exhausted he is physically and mentally. And I think, um, well, personally, I think that, like, the more torture he went through, um, the more it was easier for him to give in and then having the fear was his um, final straw to him, I guess, breaking down. And um, I think, like, um, O'Brien... I, well, going back, sorry. Um, O'Brien just betraying both Winston and Julia, really, I think that was the first initial shock that really, I guess, um, changed... Winston and his perspective and views um and I think the last thing that fully changed Winston was the the rat cage um and um seeing his fears come to life my last scene is the last scene in the book actually so going off of what Sam said Winston was being tortured by O'Brien and the party in room 101 and he was led to believe that he was gonna die we were led to believe that they were killing Winston literally and that the book was gonna end how Julia died and now it's Winston's turn to die and Winston never got his um win over the party he never got what he's been working so hard for this entire time. And then we see in the very last pages of the book that Winston didn't die literally, but O'Brien killed him figuratively. Afterwards, there 
was a new Winston that came out, one who would never even think of going up against the party, and one who conforms to all of Oceania's societal confirms and beliefs. Um, Winston made it so O'Brien had, I mean, sorry, O'Brien made it so Winston had such a big, um, like, brain fry, in a sense. He really put Winston in his place by wiping out all of his memory and all of his thoughts. And I thought it was very interesting because, you know, every single book and movie you think is going to have, like, a happy, good ending that the main character is going to get what they want. But in 1984, it ended with Winston figuratively dying and inevitably the party won. Winston didn't win. Julia didn't win. They didn't overthrow Big Brother, overthrow the party. Uh, It ended with Big Brother and O'Brien and the party getting their way and they cranked down on Winston and they broke him. Yeah, um, I completely agree and going off of what you said about just like um, O'Brien and um, him, I guess, frying him. I also think like it was a, an, like the initial shock of Winston finding out that he he's hasn't been alone this whole time. Like even though he thought he was like sneaky about everything with the journal, but in reality he was being watched. And I think that really like um, took a turn for Winston, I think, in his development. Um, because I think we we're all just expecting Winston to get away, like with what you said with the rebellion. But I, but I, th- with the knowledge that O'Brien had and um, him being able to stalk Winston for that long and um, get away with stalking Winston was just a huge shock for I think the readers and um, and I feel like Winston really when he learned he was never alone that whole time, it really changed his perspective on a lot of things. And it did change my perspective. I mean, like you said, I didn't expect Winston to get caught because we always um, expect like a happy ending. But the, the, the ending of Winston being dead is just was foreshadowed throughout the whole book. And you don't realize it until you actually, um, process the ending that you know Winston really set himself up for I guess mentally and emotionally being dead and not the same person yeah I feel like it was kind of a depressing ending that I wasn't expecting because I kind of like thought when like when they were like at O'Brien's house and then they were like like talking about the rebellion I was like oh like it's for sure like that's what part three is gonna be like it's gonna be like them winning but I didn't really know how and then it was like all of a sudden he was like in a torture chamber and I was like oh like oh dang it that sucks you know and then I think the one thing like at the end that I thought was really sad because I feel like the whole time Winston was kind of like he was kind of like positive in the rebellion and then I don't really remember exactly what page it was or anything. It was, like, part three, and there was, like, chapter three. No, chapter four, I think. And it was, like, when he was, like, writing down the slogans, and he'd, like, been in the torture thing for a while. And he was, like, it was, like, he accepted everything. The past was alterable, like, something like that. And so he it was kind of sad to see him, like, accept, like, the party's ways and not have his own individuality anymore. 
So yeah, I think that closes out our podcast. So thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.